Welcome back to Truth, Justice, and Hope, a podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode three. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in. In this episode, we are going to continue our discussion of Superman, Lois, and Clark, which picks up after the events of Convergence and explores the lives of Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and their son, John, in the new 52 universe. We're going to do issues three and four of that series this episode. They are great, and I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get started on that, though, I do want to share some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, I am recording this episode about a week after the release of Superman, Son of Kal-El, number one. Oh, and I do want to apologize for being late on this episode. Um, I got started about a week late. I had a project that had a deadline and a very short time amount of time to do it. So I had to devote all of my time last week to this. And these episodes usually take me about two weeks to record. So you will probably be hearing this one about three weeks after the last one came out. Again, I do apologize for that. I'm going to try to keep these things about two weeks apart, if not sooner. But, you know, that's life. Sometimes things happen. But anyway, like I was saying, um, about a week ago, Superman, Son of Kal-El never came out. It is fantastic. If you have not read it, and if you are a Superman fan... Or if you're a fan of John Kent or of Tom Taylor's writing, you should absolutely go check it out. Now, I'm not going to talk very much about that here. Um, I will get to it eventually. It'll take a long time at the rate that I'm going to, um, to issues an episode with lots and lots and lots of comics to discuss in between. Um, but I do want to mention something that happened in it. Now this, I don't consider this a spoiler because this was all over the internet. This is all over social media. Um, one of the nerd sites did, uh, an article about it, but in this series, John as the other Superman, he's, he's a, he's not replacing Clark, but they are both going to be Superman simultaneously. He, um, rather than just punching supervillains, the direction of the series seems to be that he's going to tackle some real-life type problems like poverty and climate change and, you know, other you know, real-life issues, which I think is amazing. And to go along with that, um, John says he's going to fight for truth, justice, and a better tomorrow, which I really, really like. Uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, one, I came up with the name Truth, Justice, and Hope back in January of 2021. It's August right now as I'm recording this. And, you know, what is hope if not for the desire for a better tomorrow? So I feel like I was kind of on the pulse of that one, which is neat. Um, I also, and some may think this is controversial, but so be it. I like that they are distancing um, Superman as a concept away from the American way part of Superman's traditional tagline that came out in the 1950s when American culture was very different than it is now um, in some ways. And I, I like that one because it makes John, and I don't know if Clark's going to use that tagline as well. I hope he does. But it distances John specifically um, away from, it makes him more of a citizen of the world rather than being under the impression, giving the impression of being beholden to the socio-political ideals of the country where he was raised. It makes him more of a global superhero than a quote-unquote American superhero, which is nice. And it also distances him from the divisiveness of what different people think of as the American way. And it reminds me of the concepts that James Tinian introduced in his um, Justice League series that started in 2018, where he has justice and doom as metaphysical concepts that are constantly vying to be the balancing force of the universe. And justice is basically, you know, a desire for the betterment of all people. And doom is kind of a brutal sense of self-interest. And I think that's kind of analogous to how different people view the American way. You know, some people see it as, you know, the, the right to live without persecution or harassment, you know, based on your gender, race, nationality, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, so forth, and to not live in squalor 
and some people view it as the the entitlement to better themselves exclusively even if it um, is not good for other people and so I, I think that's good that they're stepping away from that because I personally don't want Superman of any kind, any member of the House of L, to be associated with the latter version of how some people view the American way, the what I call, call the doom aspect of it. But there were a lot of people who were not happy about this. Um, Right-wing media jumped on it, just as they did with um, a recent issue of Captain America that I'm not super-duper familiar with, so I'm not going to quote that. But, you know, Superman hates America because he doesn't say the American way anymore. And there were members of the comic book community online who were not pleased about it. And a lot of people had a lot of things to say, which is sad. Um, and one stuck out particular for me, uh, and I'm not going to call the guy out by name, but he patterns himself after a Flash villain, which probably says all you need to know right there. And I don't know why this guy said this this kind of thing. He has a pattern of it as I'm just scrolling through his timeline. And, you know, he may just be saying it for for attention to be an edgelord. He may really believe these things. I don't know. I don't care. But he basically said that Tom Taylor has made uh, John Kent into a quote-unquote social justice champion, which he meant in a bad way, and um, that... You know, just implying that, you know, John is now a political hack, you know, and so, um, and so I screenshotted the tweet because I didn't want to signal boost the actual tweet itself, and I tweeted it out, and I made a comment along the lines of, you know, saying that any one writer could turn, you know, Superman, you know, John, Clark, whoever, into a champion of social justice is being deliberately ignorant because that's what they've been since the inception. You know, the house of, members of the House of L, Clark, John, Connor, Kara, you know, John Henry and and Lana by extension, you know, have always stood for the the betterment and the rights and equality of all beings. And the response to this was amazing. Um, a lot of people liked it, including Tom Taylor, which is great. A lot of people retweeted it. A lot of people had very positive or you know, affirming comments to for it. I think out of all the likes and retweets and comments, maybe like what, less than one percent were negative, and some of them were just straight up weird. So I just kind of dismissed them. Um, and so you know that was really cool, and it was neat to see that my tweet in response to this negative tweet got twice as many likes as it did, but you know, that, that's just an ego thing. So whatever. And, you know, my initial reason for tweeting this out, it, it was kind of a knee jerk nerd reaction to someone saying something like offensively incorrect about my favorite superhero. You're like, no, that's not who Superman is. Nerd rage, whatever. And you know, it's fine. But, you know, as it's gone on, I think the thing that bothers me about it most is that if this is what this guy really feels, um, it's really upsetting. And I know there are people in the comic book community that feel like this, that there are people in the superhero comic book community who feel it's a bad thing for superheroes to be champions of you know, real life issues, to want to tackle things like poverty and climate change and, you know, um, you know, social inequity in all those things, and that makes them political hack ideas. And you know, I'm not an activist by any means, whether in real life or online. You know, if I was a younger man who had more time and energy, and you know, but I'm, you know, I also have to be worried about putting my family in the line of fire of you know hateful responses, which I'm not going to do. But I do feel it's important to push back against things like this every once in a while. Um, because the people who say things like this, they are in the ideological minority, but they are the loudest. And so they get the most attention. And so every once in a while, I feel it's important for us to say something because uh, they don't care. But it reminds the rest of us 
that those of us who stand with justice uh, stand together and vastly outnumber those who stand with doom. All right, let's talk about some comic books. Superman Lois and Clark number three is brought to us by writer Dan Jurgens, penciler Lee Weeks, inkers Scott Hanna, Sergio Carello, Cariello, and Lee Weeks, which tells us that this issue is probably a little behind. It's lettered by Larger World Studios and colored by Brad Anderson, with a cover by Steven Segovia and Ellery Santos. And that cover is awesome. It's got uh, Clark in his black and silver stealth suit with his beard, and he's kind of hunched over with an angry expression on his face, and his right hand balled into a fist, and his left arm is kind of pushing Lois behind him. And she's got a look on her face, and there is no background, but there is this kind of ominous blue-green light coming up behind them, and there's kind of like zombie hands coming at them from the reader's point of view, and it's really cool. It's a really good cover. I like it a lot. I also like how they do the logo on this comic. Instead of centering it at the top like you normally see with comics, it is in the upper right corner of the book. And I think that's how the previous two books looked as well, but I just wasn't paying attention. And it is the Superman logo with the title of the book inside of it. And then along the top of the book, next to the logo, we have the subtitle of the book, which is The Fortress of Horrors. And again, I really, really like this cover. So it opens with a flashback. It says several years ago, and we have a guy who he's completely like albino white, and he's wearing completely white clothing, and he has long, completely white hair. He kind of reminds me of a younger version of Elijah Snow from Planetary. And he is walking down the center of a small town that is completely destroyed. The buildings are on fire. The buildings are, are crumbled. There's upturned cars. You see like a dead person's hand um, laying across the, um, the panel like, from where they are just off panel. And uh, this is blank. B-L-A-N-Q-U-E. And he is a new character created by Dan Jurgens, and he is going to be a reoccurring villain throughout Jurgens' run in the Rebirth era. And Blank considers himself an artist of death and destruction. Um, uh, like as he's walking through town, you know, surveying his handiwork, he's looking around, and he says, "This, this is true art." A bit short of a masterpiece, perhaps. That is yet to come. He says, and it's still, but he says the destruction he's caused here still deserves a fitting place in the in the museum of now. And so this is apparently the town of Rusty Ridge, uh, which has a population of 3,106 people. And as Blank walks past the sign, he uses his telekinesis to make all the other letters drop off so now it just says population zero which he says is now accurate and we see that they are upturned in flaming tanks <clears throat> excuse me on the ground near a gas station and he stops and he ponders the tanks and he says i can sense you in there still among the living and that is where clark bursts up from under the tanks and there's a full splash page and a rock sound effect. And he hurls the tanks off of himself. And he's wearing uh, like regular civvies over his black stealth suit. And he just bursts up from the ground and answers blank. It says, damn right. And it is a awesome, awesome page. I love it so much. And so they fight. Um, again, blank is a powerful uh, telekinetic and as like Clark hurls the tank at him, Blank uh, shatters the tank with his telekinesis and throws the parts back at Clark. Um, Clark here does not have his full beard. He is still 
uh, he's got some like some. I wouldn't say five o'clock shadow. He's got like some maybe nine o'clock at night shadow. But uh, the beard is on its way, and blank uh, sees the obvious resemblance between uh, our Clark and the new Fifty Two Superman. He says, "Who are you?" His older brother, perhaps, or a cousin. So he it does acknowledge that even though he is, he looks very much like the Clark Kent of the New 52 universe. He is older. And again, the New 52 Superman is supposed to look like he's maybe in his early or mid-20s, while our Clark looks more like he is in his mid to late 30s. And so they fight. And uh, let's see, Clark buries himself underground and he flies back up and grabs the guy. And he's flying him up out into space. And that is where we find out that Blank is also um, telepathic. And he is um, communicating with with Clark telepathically. And he's taunting Clark, says, well, you you know you can't you can't contain me. Um, you know, any prison, you know, he says, no prison has ever held me for more than a day. I'll escape and I'll do this again and again and again. You can't stop me. But he also knows that Clark won't let him suffocate in space. So, and Clark is really, really thinking about it. Like he is just flying farther and farther out away from the planet and, uh, blank starts to pass out from last lack of oxygen. He says, see, Death, you're just like me, after all, an artist. When Clark realizes what he's doing, and he flies back to Earth. And that is where that scene ends, and we jump to the present. And in this scene, excuse me, in this scene, uh, Clark is flying back home, and we get a flashback to the previous day, where Clark and Lois were discussing the aftermath of uh, the attack on Lois and John by the goons with guns, who we know to be inner gang. And Clark has confirmed without a doubt that they had no idea who their target was. All they knew that they were supposed to go after the person who was meeting with the publisher who was going to publish the expose from author X about Intergang, but they don't know who author X is. So their secret is still safe. They do not have to initiate protocol Omega, which is their plan to uproot everything and disappear once again. But, you know, they acknowledge that, you know, it is still, you know, a potential problem and they are still debating you know, whether or not to tell John about Clark's secret. Lois thinks that Clark should, that, that John should know, and Clark is very reluctant to do so, which will be mirrored in the, you know, okay, <laughs> I phrased that weird. It was mirrored in the uh, season premiere of uh, Superman and Lois, the uh, TV show that I absolutely adore where Lois wanted to tell their twin sons, Jordan and John, about Clark's secret, and Clark wanted to keep it from them to try to let them have a normal childhood. So they are um, they are going to go take John to school. It's the next day. Um, and Lois has like a sports car <laughs> in the driveway of the, uh, of the farmhouse. And I don't know where she got this. I guess maybe she got it with her money for, uh, from being author X. But uh, those of you who are fans of 90s Superman comics will know that Lois usually drives a flashy sports car. So that was kind of a neat touch. Uh, but Clark says that the, uh, that the family car is still in the shop. And so, but they talk about what well, you cannot tell your friends at school about what happened. You know, you, you know, this is dangerous. You know, people, you know, they, they don't explain why they need to be so secretive about it, but they need, they, you know, basically, if you start talking about it, then it might get back to someone who could say, oh, this kid and his mom, this kid says he and his mom were attacked. Those are obviously the people that we inner gang were after. 
And John is, of course, very disappointed because he wanted to uh, he wanted to tell you know what an awesome story it was that uh, he and his mom beat up some bad guys. But no, I'm sorry, they weren't taking John to school. They were waiting for the bus to come pick him up. So um, John takes off. Clark strips out of his his civvies. He's got the black stealth suit underneath. One neat little touch. And this might have just been like an artistic flub. I don't know, but I, I like to think it's on purpose. Is that Clark's boots in this suit, they're not like a seamless piece of the suit, like the resurrection, like the black resurrection suit for Man of the Superman. The boots are separate. They have a the top of them are silver. And they they look a little bit like cowboy boots, honestly, just the cut of them, because you can see where there's just a very slight um, break, not just in the coloring, because there's like a silver border at the top, but they actually stick out a little bit away from the bodysuit and just the cut of the top of the boot. In fact, they stick out, or it looks like cowboy boots a little bit, which I thought was kind of fun. But they are talking about, uh, Clark and Lois are talking about the space shuttle Excalibur, uh, which you will, may remember from last issue uh, was the, this universe's equivalent of the space shuttle that brought Hank Henshaw and his crew back to Earth in the pre-Flashpoint universe, which led to Henshaw eventually becoming the cyborg Superman. And Henshaw was on this version of the Excalibur as well. Now, Clark says to her that the ship arrived empty. I don't know if he means it was empty with the exception of Henshaw, or if Clark is deliberately um, maybe misleading Lois about this for some reason. So that is very odd and we will have to find out what they intend for that to be as we go through this miniseries but um, let's see Clark says I don't know what went down with Henshaw but it's time I find out so it may just mean that with the exemption with the exemption of Henshaw the shuttle was empty because they do actually mention that when Clark first peels open the space shuttle and finds Henshaw, in, Henshaw inside he says where's the rest of the crew so that is interesting. So Clark is flying. I don't think this is necessarily supposed to be the Arctic, but it is somewhere mountainous and very cold. But Clark has made himself a makeshift fortress of solitude up here in the mountains where it is very, very cold. It almost looks like maybe Colorado, but, you know, it probably is supposed to be a little farther out than that. It's just not quite... I don't know. I've I've obviously never seen the Arctic in person. I don't know what I'm talking about. But usually when I think of the Arctic, I think of it being more flat than that. And that's just from, you know, panels of Superman comics where he flies up to the Fortress of Solitude. But um, he mentions how this is compared to his old Fortress of Solitude in the pre-Flashpoint universe that this one he says this place may lack the bells and whistles of my previous sanctuary but that's what happens when you have to build it without an assist from keptonian technology however as we get inside you know at first he's like okay i can see that it just kind of looks like a like a sparse tunnel with some running lights and then there's like a tube that goes straight down but then he flies down the tube and the tube is lined with like technological plates and he and he lands, and there's a technological door with a with a retinal scanner, and it opens up, and there's like this massive dome inside, and it's got like a statue of Jor-El and Laura holding up, you know, the you know a model of Krypton, and there's like an actual spaceship just floating in it, and it looks like he's made his own version of the Kryptonian battle suit, um, also their car that was attacked by the inner gang goons is there. Um, and there's some kind of like space laser scanner thingy that looks like it's going to cut James Bond in half. And like, there's all these Kryptonian crystals and there's like, there's trees growing in. So if he does this all without 
and assist from Kryptonian technology, they are really leaning into the fact that Superman is a lot smarter than people think he is. You know, everybody everybody always says that Batman's the smartest member of the Justice League. And he's probably the best tactical thinker, but dang, if Superman can do all this without an assist from tech, Kryptonian technology, that is really something. So he's walking through his makeshift fortress, and he's got he's got the armor of the guy from the last issue that could create earthquakes. I forget what his name was supposed to be. He was kind of a throwaway villain anyway. Uh, we see where it looks like maybe it's the Persuader's Axe from Legion of Superheroes which I think is neat. And then there's also like the head of the iron giant is in a case on the wall, which is either really sad or something because, you know, of course the iron giant loves Superman. So maybe in this universe that, you know, the iron giant was part of the DCU and he was evil, or maybe like Superman found the iron giant after it, you know, died slash got destroyed and decided to keep its head as a you know as a tribute rather than a trophy but i did think that was pretty funny so he goes into this chamber where he's got henshaw and um he's got him kind of he's still in his henshaw still in his spacesuit and he's got all these technological doodads hooked up to him and the computer says that there's been minimal fluctuation. Brain activity, pulse, respiration, and heartbeat have shown almost negligible deviation the entire time he's been here. So he's more or less in a coma. And just as he's asking the computer if there's any indication that he's developing powers, Henshaw wakes up. And um, immediately starts demonstrating telekinetic abilities. But... He also is not, um, he's not speaking. He's just kind of going, uh, uh, and so like all the, all the computer monitors and things and a fire extinguisher, it gets flipped up in the air and he throws it at Clark and, and he's just going, you know, Henshaw's just going, I, I, he seems very out of it. He doesn't seem to know what's going on, but then we see that someone is speaking tele, uh, telepathically to Clark. And the impression I get from the way it's it's expressed here is that someone is speaking telepathic like maybe using Henshaw as a telepathic conduit. Like they're not speaking directly to Clark telepathically, but they're using Henshaw as like the vessel through which they are expressing their tele telepathic ability. But uh it is very obviously blank. And, um, excuse me, Clark has him in a prison in the, um, in his fortress. And, um, so blank has kind of telekinetically possessed Henshaw. It's not real clear. It, it, it comes across as maybe blank piling Henshaw's body through telekinesis or maybe he's kind of like literally possessing it psychically I don't know uh, I think that's kind of intentionally left uh, left uh, ambiguous but blank through Henshaw brings like a whole bunch of rock down on Clark to stun him at least um, blank has fished the codes to blank's prison cell from Clark's mind and he uses Henshaw to type in the code so we get in the cell and um, through okay so here again it's a little vague and I think that's intentional and again I don't remember exactly what happens after this so we'll find out when we get to it but it looks like that uh, Henshaw's presence inside the fortress gave blank someone else to funnel his powers through because after Henshaw got there and after Blank started possessing him, then Blank was able through Henshaw to reach into Clark's mind to get, his, get a mental image of Lois and John. And Blank is saying, let me out and we're going to go pay them a visit, which is very creepy. So from there, we jump scenes to California and we have Bruno Ugly Mannheim at his uh at his mansion and his swimming pool 
Uh, those of you, again, who are fans of uh, 70s Jack Kirby Superman or of 1990s Superman uh, will know that Ugly Mannheim is one of the major bosses of Inner Gang. He's getting out of his pool and he's got two of the goons that were there that tried to uh, attack Lois and John, the one that you know Clark helped stop. And he's like, uh, you, you're like, oh, you, you ain't going to shoot us, are you, boss? And Mannheim's like, what kind of boss shoots his men? And he's like, thanks, Mr. Mannheim. He goes, why, if I did that, I'd have the cops breathing down my neck. That's why it has to look like an accident. So he, like, shoves, like a <laughs> like a generator into the pool. See, what is it? Heat master? I guess, uh, I don't know. It's some kind of electronic thing into the pool and electrocutes the two guys. And so from there, our final scene of the issue is the warrior space queen lady who has been hunting down the Oblivion Stone has attacked a Dominator ship. And she and her people have killed everyone on board except for one last Dominator. And let's see, she thinks that the Dominators have the Oblivion Stones. And the Dominator says they no longer have it. They lost it and it is now in the soul system. In other words, our solar system. And she runs the Dominator through the chest with her sword as thanks. And she's, so she is going to go to Earth, or at least to our solar system, to find the Oblivion Stone, whatever that is, and for whatever purpose she wants it for. So this was pretty awesome. You can probably tell my voice. I'm very excited by this. I've also had a lot of coffee, but that's okay. Um, I like Blank as a villain. He's kind of one-dimensional, but that's okay. Um, he's very, very powerful. He's very smart. He has a power set that I think works really well against Superman. Um for those of you that follow me on Twitter, again, that's at about Superman. You've kind of heard my thoughts about what I think about 90s Brainiac. And for a long time, I was kind of down on him because my formative Brainiac is the one from the Superpowers toy line. Uh, the one, the design that they came up shortly before Crisis on Infinite Earths. And so my impression of Brainiac in general uh, is more cybernetic and robotic and this Brainiac is pretty much just a green guy with really powerful psionic abilities and he's reverted more to the um, cybernetic version Blank I think makes a good stand-in for that version of Brainiac which I have really come to appreciate since because he's such a must mustache twirling evil guy and Blank is like that only he's like a complete sociopath so you know he's his power set can stand up against Clark. He's not physically a match for Clark, but he also knows that Clark will not kill him. And that's really the only thing that can stop him. And so it's not only a physical challenge, it's also a moral conundrum, which I think works really well. Um, I like the ongoing subplot with the Oblivion Stone. Again, I know where it's going. That's one of the few things I do remember from this before. Not that it's not a memorable run, I've just got a bajillion other things going on, and I have really bad ADHD. So, you know, I, I have really good processing power, but very low memory. <laughs> um, I was kind of, I didn't really care one way or another about the inner gang stuff when I read this before, but that was before I had, I had read um, very much of the 90s Superman run and before I had read uh, the Kirby Superman stuff. So I really have a big appreciation for inner gang now. Um, so I'm, I don't remember where they're going with this other than just kind of treating them as like a mafia stand-in. And if that's the case, it's a little disappointing, but I, I enjoy their presence being there. I, I like it better when they're kind of like earthly agents of apocalypse or people that uh, Darkseid has given weapons to to just like sow chaos on Earth. That works. But if they're just regular mob dudes, that, that's fine. We'll do. Um, but yeah, this was a ton of fun. Uh, I really, really like the art in this. Um, I always enjoy Jurgen's storytelling. 
So yeah, so that's great. So we're gonna take a short uh, sponsor break and then I'll be back to talk about Superman, Lois and Clark number four. And we're back. And Superman, Lois and Clark number four is written by Dan Jurgen with Lee Weeks and Marco Santucci as pencilers. Sergio Cariello and Scott Hanna are the inkers. Larger World Studios is the letterer. And Jeremy Cox is the colorist. And there are two covers. Uh, the first one is pretty awesome. It's by Lee Weeks. It has Clark in his beard and black stealth suit laying prone with an almost zombie-like astronaut uh, Hank Henshaw standing over him uh, amid some rubble with a looks like maybe a desert landscape behind them and then the stars overhead. It's pretty great. Um, the alternate cover, I'm not sure who it's by. I think it says Lopez down at the bottom, and I'm not 100% sure who that is. Um, but it is black and white, and it is Clark holding up some rubble uh, so that Lois can walk casually beneath it. And at the bottom, it says Adult Coloring Book Variant Cover. And if you're more than nine years old and you're coloring on the cover of your comic book, you're a monster. Uh, just kidding, but not really. Don't color on the on the covers of your comic books. <laughs> but anyway, um, so it opens with uh, some time in the past, and uh, Clark and Lois are taking a honeymoon vacation into the metropolis of this universe, and they are discovering that even though Metropolis is mostly the same, there are some subtle differences. Um, they say it doesn't look quite as clean, um, but it's mostly the same. They see a street performer that they're familiar with. Um, Lois buys uh, John, who is, I think, around a toddler at this time, a, a very small Superman T-shirt. And Clark mentions that the logo or the symbol on the T-shirt is subtly different than his own Superman logo. Um, they run into, they almost run into Jimmy as he and a date are walking down the street and, you know, Lois throws her hood up and, you know, Clark, you know, pulls his ball cap down and they kind of duck into the shadows. And so, you know, they are still, you know, dealing with the fact that, you know, there is a, a Clark Kent and there is a Lois Lane in this universe and they are having to remain incognito and they go to a very nice hotel for their where they're staying and so i'm guessing lois is doing very well for herself as author x and this is where lois gives clark an anniversary present and this is where she first gives him the black stealth suit and she says it is something uh that the military had created um, apparently he'd created it for the Superman of the new 52 universe. It is of course the black and silver suit. And she says it's a, uh, it's a military slash star labs joint effort. And it's made out of a special palm or fabric that will take a lot of abuse, which I think is interesting. I'll double back around to that in a second. And she says that she passed herself off as the Lois Lane of the new 52 universe to get Clarence to borrow it. And then when New 52 Lois finds out, she's probably going to be very, very confused. Now, what I think is interesting, and this is probably something that's been undone by continuity in the last 30 years. I'm old. Um, but I rem you know, I'm recently going back and rereading the John Byrne uh, Man of Steel from 1986 in his run shortly after where it's it's very strongly hinted that Clark's powers at least his flight and strength and invulnerability are kind of subconsciously telekinetic in nature and you know it's it's rationalized i think because they were you know it was starting to as comic books were starting to become less of a exclusively children's medium and people were growing older but still reading them it's like well why do they run around in their skin tight costumes and they were trying to find some justification for that you know it was established that anything that was very close to clark's body was as inv as invulnerable as he was 
In other words, there was like a, a very uh, strong, almost force field like thing that extended out like a, like a few millimeters from his body. So that his you know, cape could get destroyed on a regular basis, but anything that was skin tight would not get destroyed. And you know, I think probably by the time the exile storyline had come around in like maybe late 88 or early 89, that had gone away. Because I remember, I swear I remember reading in a who's who entry about Superman where it talked about his powers, how it, how explained his flight was telekinetic in that it, it pushed off from the largest uh, like body of mass around him. So that if he was on Earth, it was like pushing off of the Earth. And if he was near the moon, it was pushing off the moon. But if, if he was like deep out in space, there'd be nothing to push off of. Um, as was the um, as was the case in Exile, because he was deep, 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 deep out in space, um, and so I think by then, you know, Burns' kind of retrofit of how pow Clark's powers had worked was was thrown away, and I think eventually Clark got a costume. Maybe the nature of his costume it was made of crypt Kryptonian fabric. I don't know. I know that's in there probably somewhere. I still have some gaps in my reading. I'm sorry. But it is interesting that she had to get him a costume that was super tough. Um, and that also might be part of the fact that his powers don't function as well on in this universe so far. So, you know, again, that's pretty neat. So we jump from there back to the present. <clears throat> and this is where we also change artists. And it it is a little jarring. Um... Uh, what was this gentleman's name again? Uh, <laughs> super professional. Um, Marco Santucci. I don't like his stuff as much as Lee Weeks. Um, there are panels that it almost looks like a very softened John Romita Jr. And I don't hate John Romita Jr. I like his older stuff. I don't like his new stuff. You know, I like everything up till maybe about like maybe the late 90s to very very early 2000s of his work but beyond that i'm not a fan but anyway um lois has taken john um somewhere metropolitan in california it just says california the present because they do in fact live in california and that's where their farm is i assume maybe this is los angeles or san francisco or something i don't know it doesn't say but lois is going to check on her publisher because, again, the intergang goons that were chasing Lois didn't know they were specifically chasing Lois Lane. They were chasing someone that they saw leaving her publisher's office. So she takes John inside, and that is where she finds a note that has been stabbed to the desk with a dagger. And it looks like it's been written in like either very... A wide red sharpie or red lipstick that says we have her on a piece of paper and this is also where john finds the um the the article from the daily planet that says superman's secret identity revealed written by lois lane and he does not really know what's going on with that so he tears off the article from the paper that's laying around and shoves it in his pocket but they go outside, and that is, and you know, Lois puts on her hat and her sunglasses. Uh, the you know almost is impenetrable, impenetrable disguise as a trench coat and fedora, and has John pull his hoodie up, and they run into a guy who asks her, "Can you direct me to the Stevenson Building, please?" And Lois realizes that he is speaking kind of in code. She says, Stevenson, as in Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Kidnapped. And she recognizes the person right away as Bruno Mannheim. And this is part of how the, the art change is a little jarring. Because in the last issue, when Weeks was drawing it exclusively, Mannheim was much bigger. He, was, he wasn't cut, but he was definitely swole. He looked... It's like if you you know if you've seen the Brendan Fraser mummy movies, he looks like the build of the guy who played Imhotep, you know, very muscular, but still you know kind of softer on the edges. Uh, this Mannheim is a lot thinner, 
and they don't really look like the same character. Um, but you know, she plays it off casually and she says, no, I don't know where that is. You were from out of town. Um, and he says, well, we wouldn't want you to get lost. What'd you say your name is? And she says, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't say, and she's reaching in her gun and she's got her hand around a pistol inside her gun and they walk away very quickly. But, uh, you know, as they walk off, uh, Mannheim says, gotcha. So I don't know if Mannheim is supposed to have recognized her as a Lois Lane or he just can now more or less identify the person who they are supposed to be hunting for. From there, we switch to Clark's makeshift Fortress of Solitude, where he is mentally lamenting again about how his powers are weaker in this universe, which is what enabled Blank to get the drop on him with a bunch of rubble, but Clark bursts his way out. And he is looking for Blank and Henshaw, and they ambush him, and there is quite a bit of telekinetic fighting with rubble and bits of metal and all that being thrown up at them. And Blank mentions how Clark was able to keep Blank's telekinesis, uh, not telekinesis, his telepathy in check by blasting him with a steady barrage of noise, music, sound, and radio signals that were constantly pumped into his cell, which kept him from hearing or interacting with any minds from the outside world. And I guess maybe Clark is immune to the effects of it. Um, like, Blank can like talk to Clark, but he can't control Clark's mind, I guess. But when Clark brought Henshaw into the fortress, um, that was a whole other deal. And again, it, it doesn't really say how, um, it doesn't, I, I guess, sorry, my coffee maker broke last night and my new one won't be here until later on today. And it's about nine in the morning and I'm really, really kind of out of it. So bear with me as I record this section because my mind is is going very, very slowly today. Um, but basically, he was able to use his telepathy to um, control Henshaw's mind uh, enough to get Henshaw to open his cell. It doesn't really say why um, Blank is still holding on to Henshaw, but it does say that he can detect something different and special about Henshaw. So he's kind of keeping him along for the ride. But there is a good bit of fighting here. Um, Blank throws Lois's car at Clark, and Clark blows it up with his heat vision. And just a lot of fighting in the second half of this one. And eventually, Blank uses Stelekinesis to blast Clark all the way out of the mountain where the fortress is hidden and then bring part of the mountain down, or at least cause a like, avalanche of snow down on him. And um, again, Blank mentions how uh, he took the images of Lois and John from Clark's mind and he knows that they live in California and that is where they're heading next. And lastly, again on the on the last page of the book, we have Alien Warrior Queen looking for the Oblivion Stone and her ship is in our solar system now and it has encountered another ship uh, in the moons of Jupiter. And they say that uh, the Oblivion Stone was here, but it is now gone. And there is what looks like a dead human floating in some kind of high-tech suit in the ship that they found. And again, remember the, the space shuttle Excalibur, its mission was to go to Jupiter and back. So very strong implication that that maybe has something to do with Henshaw. We don't know yet. But uh, the records that they find on the ship includes 
that, uh, let's see, uh, Warrior Queen's henchman says, records show a small ship left this station years ago and no one has seen been here since. She asks its destination and her minion says Earth. And she says, our next stop. And if I must tear that misbegotten little mud ball apart to get the stone, I will be more than happy to do so. So that is the end of issue four. Pretty good. Not as great as issue three. I think the art difference does make, um, does you know, affect my, how much I like it. I do like Lee Weeks's work a whole lot better. Um, also, this one's mostly a lot of fighty fight in the second half. Which, you know, can be fun, but it also, and when it comes to describing a fight, unless it's just the most amazing thing, it can be summed up with, there was a lot of fighting. So that was that, and that pretty much wraps up our, our coverage for this episode. So next episode, we are going to continue talking about this miniseries. We're going to talk about issues five and six, so we are halfway done. It is an eight-part miniseries. Um, in the meantime, if you enjoy my shenanigans, feel free to follow me on Twitter at about Superman. I am on there all the time, um, constantly commenting on my read through of Superman comics of different eras. I just finished up the nineties about a week ago. I'm into the early two thousands. I just finished the Y2K arc and I'm on to the Lois and Parasite story. Um, I'm also, let's see, in modern comics, I'm nearing the end of 2000, so I'm just about caught up on um, uh, DC Infinite of what, you know, is going to be on there as far as recent stuff, so that's pretty exciting. I'm getting near the end of Dark Knight's Death Metal, which is a really fun story. I'm surprised at how much I like it, but... Um, yeah, that would be great, and also, if you like what I'm doing here with the show... Anchor does give you the option to sponsor me directly, which would be great. Um, it's not like Patreon, so I can't promise any special bonus episodes or anything. But the more, you know, the more I bring in from the show, the less I have to work on other side hustles to bring in a little extra money. So the more the show makes, the more I can make of the show. So if you like what I'm doing, feel free to contribute. That would be wonderful. The theme music for the show is from the song The Fire in Her Eyes by the musical project Two Steps from Hell. It is used with permission. And of course, Superman and all other related characters are the property of DC Comics and Warner Brothers. So um, I'm looking forward to getting on to the next two episodes, uh, next two issues of this miniseries. After this miniseries, we're going to talk about the death of or the tail end of the arc of the death of the new super new 52 Superman, as well as the DC uh, rebirth one shot. So that's going to be a lot of fun for the near future. And then after that, of course, we will start on the actual rebirth era of DC comics. And I'll be back hopefully in two weeks with that. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind, in an open heart. Love you. Bye.